Uh, my name is Steve. I am uh, the campus pastor here, as Paul said, and if you were able to join us last weekend for Good Friday and Easter services, then you know it was a great special weekend. And over the last week, many of you have reached out to us just to tell us uh, what a great weekend that you had celebrating with us and how Good Friday and Easter Sunday connected together and how much you appreciated the way that we were able to celebrate together. And I want to tell you the feeling is mutual because our staff really has been genuinely excited to gather with you uh, again today as we worship Jesus uh, for all that he has done for us. Now, if you served last weekend, whether you were in Gen Kids, excuse me for just a second, okay, if you don't mind. Uh, that beautiful weather comes with a side order of pollen, you probably noticed. <laughs> Uh, if, if you served last weekend, I want to say thank you. Uh, if you served in Gen Kids or GSM or on the host team or the cafe or in the parking lot or on the worship team, wherever you served, anywhere else, thank you so much for helping to make it such a great weekend. We literally could not have done it without you. And uh, just in case you weren't able to join us, let me give you a little recap. We uh, celebrated baptism last weekend across our two campuses. And in fact, uh, this year so far, we have baptized 16 people into new life in Christ across our two campuses at Genesis. So that's pretty exciting, right? That's good. I think you can see the Lord is on the move. Also, not only that, but we also had the largest attendance on Sunday that we have had since before COVID. And so that was really encouraging for us. Now, attendance is not the goal. I just want you to know that attendance is not the goal. But I told my wife that preaching is a little bit like trying to move a heavy piece of furniture. And I grab one end and you guys grab the other. And if you don't do your part, it's a pretty heavy load to carry, okay? But uh, the fact that we had such a great crowd last weekend. And it also means that a lot of people got to hear the gospel message last weekend. So that's exciting. Um, you know, the Lord is on the move. People are finding their way back to God here. And because of that, I want to give a special thank you to you. If you are one of our regular givers, if you give on a regular basis, thank you so much. Your generosity means so much to us. You are the fuel behind this ministry. And I'll just remind you right now that if you came prepared to give today, there are giving boxes in the back of the room. You can hit those up on your way out. Or you can always visit our giving site, genesischurch.me slash give, and start a one-time or recurring gift there. Now, at the end of the month, we'll officially wrap up our two-year greater initiative which has allowed us to set aside funds for future building projects here in Noblesville. And we've also completed some work in Carmel. If you've not been over to our Carmel campus, they're doing the same thing that we're doing right now. And uh, that's a great facility. And they've been uh, improving, working to improve that. As many of you know, we've been looking for a new home for our Noblesville campus. We don't have one yet, but uh, your giving, your generous giving has allowed us to set aside some funds so that if something comes up, we're ready to move as soon as we can. And it's also allowed us to give away more money than we've ever given away before as a church. And so thank you for that. And in fact, uh, we're going to wrap that up at the end of April. And sometime soon after that, we will give you an update on all of those things. So pay attention. So we have a lot to celebrate today. But last weekend was particularly meaningful for us as we got to, to celebrate and remember two historical events that play a critical role in the Christian faith. We remembered on Friday the death of Jesus, his death on a cross where he took all of our sin and all of our shame and took it to the cross with him. And then we celebrated on Sunday the fact that he was raised from the dead, that on the third day the Bible tells us that he was raised from the dead to prove that he was the one and only, is the one and only Son of God and Savior of the world. It was definitely an exciting and important weekend. It's uh, certainly the holiest holiday in the Christian calendar. It's one of the most important weekends of the year for us. But uh, I want you to know that it, last weekend also marked an important holiday for two other faiths. 
So last weekend marked the first time in 30 years, I don't know if you saw this or not, that the Christian celebration of Easter was aligned with the Jewish feast of Passover and the Muslim celebration of Ramadan. So what that means is last weekend that while Christians were remembering the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, Jews were celebrating the fact that God had rescued them from slavery in Egypt and brought them out into freedom. At the same time, Muslims were getting ready to break a 14-day fast to observe the day that they believe that Allah gave the Quran to the prophet Muhammad. Now, according to an article in Newsweek last week, events like this are often referred to as a harmony between the traditions, which sounds great on the surface because it implies like a sense of peace with other traditions and respect for people of different religious backgrounds. But I think this specific intersection of religious celebrations is especially important for us to pay attention to because really all three of those faiths trace their their origins back to one man, a man by the name of Abraham. And we hear the story of Abraham in Genesis in the Old Testament, but um, Muslims, Jews, Christians all trace their roots back to Abraham. And because of that, I often hear people comment, maybe you do too, that really aren't Jews, Muslims, and Christians, don't we all just worship the same God and basically believe the same thing? Why make such a big fuss? Like, why is your faith such a big deal to you? But the reality is that these three groups don't believe or practice the same things when it comes to who God is and what he's like. And especially the big difference comes when you think about the person of Jesus. And so what should naturally lead us to ask some questions. Now, here's some important questions we should ask. One, how can three groups all trace their heritage, their uh, origin back to one man in the Old Testament, but have completely different views of God? And the second one, and maybe the more important question is this, what is it about Jesus that makes him so different? That's what we're going to look into today. So if you've got your Bibles, I want to invite you to open it to John chapter 8. Today we're going to continue in our year-long series called Grow. If you've been with us, you know that we are uh, spending the entire year, basically the entire year in the book of John Uh, In 2022, we are endeavoring to study that book together to get to know the life and the ministry of Jesus a little better. And uh, as a part of that study, we want to look at the specific claim that Jesus makes uh, we're going to see this week. It's going to set him apart from other prophets, uh, other religious leaders, other teachers of the law, and every other religious figure in history. But before we jump into that in John chapter 8, I want to give you a little bit of background. A little bit of history behind this passage, because the chances are, if you've been in church for a while, you have heard this verse, this passage preached, but maybe you don't know the historical context behind it. So I want to give you a little bit of that. I'm going to go back to John chapter 7 for a minute. In John chapter 7, we learn that the Jewish feast of the tabernacles was taking place at this time in history. That's an important detail for our conversation today. We didn't touch on this last week. It was happening last week when we talked about the woman who was caught in adultery too. Um, But uh, the Jewish Feast of the Tabernacles was a week-long Jewish celebration where they remembered how God brought them out of slavery in Egypt and when they had to wander in the desert for 40 years. They wandered in the wilderness and uh, they lived in tents or tabernacles at the time. And so what happens in the Feast of Tabernacles uh, every year, they would set up a tent or a tabernacle, usually outside their home, and some would choose to eat in there, some would choose to live in there, but there were always two important um, uh, things that happened, (laughs) two important uh, elements that were celebrated uh, during the Feast of the Tabernacles. The first was referred to as the pouring of the water. 
And uh, every day during the Feast of the Tabernacles, the priest would stand in front of the temple with this golden pitcher of water. You can just picture it, right? A really beautiful golden pitcher of water. And he would bring that out of the temple and he would pour it on the ground onto a rock. And that was meant to commemorate how the Lord had provided water from a rock for the uh, Israelites when they were in, uh, wandering in the wilderness. And the second was called the illumination of the temple. Now, this would take place at the very beginning of the feast and in the treasury, and then every evening of the feast uh, all the way until the end. Now, Bible commentator Kent Hughes describes the illumination of the temple like this. I'm just going to read this to you. He says, at the center of the treasury, four giant candelabras were set up, and some accounts say they were as tall as the highest walls of the temple, so maybe as high as 50 to 60 feet tall. At the top of each golden candelabra were four huge bowls that each held 65 liters of oil, or about 17 gallons of oil. Each candelabra had a ladder, and in the evening, young, healthy priests would carry oil to the top and then light the wicks for these 16 bowls. Now, he emphasizes young, healthy priests because, you know, there ain't no 52-year-old priest carrying uh, oil, 16, 17 gallons of oil, up to the top of a candelabra on a ladder that's 50 to 60 feet high. Uh, young, healthy priests would carry these up, and light the wicks for each of the 16 bowls, which resulted in giant flames that would leap out from these 16 torches. So you can picture this right here. These four giant candelabras lit up every night during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And according to the Jewish rabbinical tradition, the light from these 16 torches was bright enough to illuminate the whole temple in much of the city of Jerusalem. So if you can imagine this, if you're in Jerusalem at night, it's dark, there's obviously no electric lighting, and you walk out, and during the Feast of the Tabernacles only, your eye is going to be drawn to the temple, right? Because it's lit up bright with these candelabras. Now, historians record the illumination of the temple as a stunning vision and say it looked like a diamond in the midst of the city. That the light from the temple uh, so filled the area around Jerusalem, uh, and it would last all night long, right? And so during the Feast of the Tabernacles, no matter how dark it was in the streets, you could always see the temple, your eyes couldn't help to be drawn to that. But as spectacular as those 16 giant torches would have been to see, it's the meaning behind them that's more important. Because centuries before they celebrated this Feast of the Tabernacles in John 7 and 8, the Lord was leading his people, the people of Israel. And as he led them through that 40 years in the wilderness, every night he would lead them as a pillar of fire. And that's what these candelabras were meant to represent, that there was light even in the darkest night because God was leading his people. Now, with that in mind, let's jump into John chapter 8. It's the final day of the Feast of the Tabernacles. We see Jesus teaching a group of people that are gathered around him, and listen to what he says, John 8, 12. He starts with this. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now, as we read on, we read in verse 20 that the place where Jesus made this statement is in the temple courts, right here in the place where at night it would have been lit up bright. These torches were lit up, making it the focal point of Jerusalem. And so it's in that context that Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. So for the last seven days, they've been walking out into the streets at night and seeing this temple light up so bright that you could see it no matter where you were in Jerusalem. And then on the last day, Jesus comes and he stands in the temple courts and he says, I am and the light of the world, whoever follows me, will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 
Now, this is the second I am statement that Jesus makes. We told you early in this series that Jesus is going to make seven statements about uh, his deity, seven statements that are I am statements in John. Here they are on the screen so you can see. He has already said, I am the bread of life. Here he says, I am the light of the world. He's going to say, I am the door of the sheep. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I am the true vine. And each of these I am statements represents a specific role that Jesus claims to be able to fulfill for us, for each and every one of us, spiritually and eternally. But that's not all. Because as we talked about a few weeks ago, every time Jesus uses this phrase, I am, he is claiming deity. He's claiming to be God, which means he's either crazy and in need of serious help, or he's telling us the truth. And he's inviting us in to enjoy and partake of what he has to offer us. So what does Jesus mean when he says, I am the light of the world? Well, to understand this, I think we need to understand uh, the role that light played, especially in the Old Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, light was often used uh, especially to refer to God's saving work in the world. So as I mentioned earlier in Exodus, when God is leading the people of Israel through the wilderness for 40 years, uh, we see that he came in a pillar of fire to display himself to the Israelites. We also see the Psalms, for instance, are full of examples of where uh, God's power is referred to as light in our lives. So a couple examples, Psalm 27.1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? And Proverbs 1.19 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And if you've ever been in the middle of a dark woods or in a place where there wasn't much light, you know how important it is to have a light for your feet, a lamp for your path to be able to walk, right? Can you see here how light represents protection, provision, uh, guidance, right? So this is what the light represents. Now, but there's another place in Scripture where light is particularly important. And so if you've got your Bible open to John 8, I want you to go back to the left all the way to page 1 in your Bible and uh, check out the first few verses in Genesis. Genesis 1-2 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless, and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep. Look at those three words, formless, empty, darkness. Formless, empty, darkness. As many of you know, it's these words in Genesis 1 were the very first words recorded for us in the whole Bible. They tell us that God is the creator of everything, that he exists everywhere. And in verse 2, we learn that when God first created the earth, it was formless and empty and dark. It doesn't sound like a very inviting place to live, does it? But then in verse 3, all that began to change, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God literally spoke light into existence, and what followed was this amazing transformation uh, with our planet, because before the light, there was nothing, and then after God created the light, uh, he began forming what had been formless, and filling what had been empty and illuminating what had been dark and bringing it all to life. Let me say that again. After God created the light, what was formless began to take shape. What was empty began to be filled. And what was lifeless was brought to light. Now, I want you to hold that thought for a minute and look at how the gospel writer refers to Jesus coming to earth. So we'll go off of Genesis 1 and go back to John 1, and it says this, In the beginning, 
was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that had been made. Now, there's a lot to pay attention to here, but the first thing I want you to know is that John starts his origin story for Jesus in the same way that the book of Genesis starts with the phrase, in the beginning. It's his way of connecting the origin story of the earth with the origin story of Jesus' life and talking about continuing that story that God has been telling for thousands and thousands of years since the beginning of time. And also you'll notice how John capitalizes the W in word, that he's saying that the word is not a thing, it's a person. And specifically, as we read on in John 14, we realize that he's talking to Jesus. When he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we find out that he's saying that Jesus is the Word. And so it could just as easily read, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. This was John's way of letting readers know that he believed that Jesus was God and played an active role in the creation of all things, including the creation of the light. And then look what John writes next in John 1, 4. It says, In him, in Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, this is the first of 16 times in the Gospel of John that light is used to describe Jesus. And here, the light is specifically referred to as the source of life for all mankind. And it's a light that the darkness cannot overcome. Do you see that? The darkness has not overcome it. Now, what does it mean that the darkness has not overcome the light? Well, when I think about that, I think about a trip that my family and I made to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky. How many of you have been to Mammoth Cave? You take that tour, right? And uh, depending on which tour you take, they'll take you into a room. But if you take a, a few of the tours, they take you to a room called the Rotunda. And the Rotunda is one of the largest rooms in Mammoth Cave. It's about a quarter of an acre in size. Uh, and it's pretty high, and it's well lit for all the tours, right? But uh, on some of the tours, when you go into the rotunda, they will have you stand still, and they will turn off all the lights. And after about a minute, you try to let your eyes adjust, and you realize you can't see anything. It's one of those places you literally can't see your hand in front of your face. But then, when we went anyway, the guide lit a match. Now, today, they'd probably turn on one of those little candles, you know, with the little switch on the bottom, because, I mean, something could catch on fire in the cave, and we want to be careful. we got to, you know, use our safety procedures. But they lit a match, and one little match lit up that entire rotunda. And you could see from the light of one little match every nook and cranny in that room and all of the stalactites and all the stalagmites. And you could look around and you could see the expression on everybody's face because a little bit of light can fill up a completely dark place, right? Uh, maybe one other example that you might relate to better if you've never been to Mammoth Cave is the first light that gets turned on in your house in the morning while you're still in bed. You know that? You know how bright that light can be? Like, I've realized that there are two types of people in this world. There are the early risers and the late sleepers, right? How many of you are early risers? Raise your hand if you're an early riser. Good for you, man. I'm so happy for you. <laughs> How many of you are late sleepers? Yes, late sleepers. You know, it's so funny because in the first service, there were a lot more early risers that raised their hand. And in this service, a lot more late sleepers. And there are early risers and late sleepers. And my experience has been they marry each other. And so uh, every, every family has an early riser and a late sleeper. I found out very early in my marriage that I was the late sleeper. 
And here's how I found out. The first Saturday after we were married, after our honeymoon, we got home. Saturday morning, I wake up and turn over and look at the clock. It's 8.15 in the morning. I turn the other way, and my wife is standing in the doorway looking at me like this. And I'm a little freaked out. i got to be honest. We've only been married a week. And I turn back around and look at the clock just to make sure that it actually said 8.15 in the morning. And I said, uh, good morning, honey. And she said, are you going to sleep all day? And I uh, turned back to the clock again to confirm. And I looked at her and I said, it's 8.15 on a Saturday. And she said, I know. Are you going to sleep all day? <laughs> now, Usually I'm pretty witty and can think fast on my feet, but it's 8.15 on a Saturday was the only thing I could say in that moment. But what I realized was that her expectation was if she's going to be up, I'm going to be up. It's our day off. We're going to spend the day together. And to her credit, that's what she wanted. She wanted to spend the day with me. It wasn't because she didn't want me to sleep. It was because she wanted to be together. But I learned in that moment that 8.15 was kind of my limit for how I was going to sleep. And uh, my wife and I are going to celebrate 30 years of marriage this year in August. Yeah, I said that just to get applause. Um, but uh, she knows that about me. But I can tell you that in 30 years of marriage, I can count on both of my hands how many times I've slept past 8.15. And even now, when Friday's my day off and she's gone at work, I, get, I wake up in the morning and like 8 o'clock, I'm like, I can't sleep any longer. I got to get up. I'm out of bed. Um, but so now my wife knows this about me. She knows I'm the late sleeper. She realizes she's the early riser. And so she's very, very careful when she wakes up in the morning to like not turn on the lights in the bedroom. She'll go into the bathroom and she'll turn on light. But every once in a while, she leaves the bathroom door cracked like two inches and she turns on the light and it floods the bedroom. And I am like, oh my gosh, light. And I'm a drama queen about it too because like I'm trying to sleep here. I need my beauty sleep. You know, I got to get as much as I can. But that light as it floods the room is the brightest thing you've ever seen in your life, right? Because a small amount of light can overcome the darkness. There's no amount of darkness that can overcome light. In Jesus was life, which was the light of mankind, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's how John's gospel begins and leads us again to the claim that Jesus makes in John 8. I'm going to look at this again. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So let's connect some dots here. And we look at the creation story from Genesis chapter 1. We learn that after God created light, what was formless began to take shape. What was empty began to be filled. And what was lifeless was brought to life. And in claiming to be the light of the world in John chapter 8, Jesus is promising that he has come to do the same thing in our lives. He wants to do the same thing in each and every one of us. He wants to take what is formless and give it shape. He wants to take what is empty and fill us up. He wants to take what is dead and bring it back to life. He alone has the power to take brokenness of our lives and perfectly reshape it for his purposes. Like Jesus alone can fill the emptiness deep down inside of us. He alone can send us the Holy Spirit who is guaranteed to satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. He alone has the authority to give us eternal life that begins here and now through faith in him and extends all the way into eternity in heaven. And he alone can take someone who is spiritually dead and bring them back to life. And if you've ever had an encounter with the living Christ, you know that this is true. You know exactly what I'm talking about because you probably have a story. Right? You have a story about a time. You could probably think of a time when 
you felt completely empty inside. You were chasing after things that didn't matter. And even when you were achieving and hitting your goals, hitting goal after goal after goal, they felt like they weren't enough. But then you met Jesus and everything changed. Or maybe you have a story about, about what you used to be, right? I, I used to have a temper. I, you used to have a drinking problem. You used to be addicted to pornography. You used to worship in the mirrors at the gym on Sunday mornings, but it wasn't satisfying you. And then Jesus came into your life and gave shape to what was formless. Or maybe you were living in darkness, in the darkness of depression or crippling anxiety, but you found a church or you found a friend who shared the gospel with you and showed you the love of Jesus. You, you found help through a Christian counselor and what was dead was brought back to life. And if any of those stories sound like yours, I am so thankful that you're here today. I'm thankful for you and I'm thankful for a God who rescues you, who brings light of life into the dark places and the darkness has not overcome it. Friends, and this is what makes Jesus so different. You know, this, this thing that we celebrate, that we believe, that I believe, that other faiths get wrong. In every other religion, every other faith, your fate is going to be determined by your performance. It's what you do and what you don't do that determines where you spend life after this life. It's how you behave. It's what good deeds you perform. Basically, basically it's how much light you can bring into the world is what's going to solve all of your problems, right? But Christianity is the story of a God who loves you so much that he came to be the light of life for you, that, that God so loved the world that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life, and that is, life is the light of life that can only come from walking in step with Jesus, that we are not judged for what we do and don't do, and where you spend eternity is not dependent on our behavior. That is good news, but friends, I want to share with you something that if you're a follower of Jesus, you shouldn't miss. Our eternal destination is not determined by what we do or don't do. That's true. But we can have a large impact on where others spend eternity. Because watch this, not only did Jesus share this incredible news, this incredible teaching that he is the light of the world, but then he went on to pass that mantle on to us, his followers. Look at this in Matthew 5. He says, you are the light of the world. You, my followers, my disciples, you, the church, you are the light of the world and a town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We, the church, the followers of Jesus, have been the recipients of the best news in the entire world. And we don't because of that light of life that we have, we don't have to be afraid. You know, we're not slaves to our sin. We're no longer subject to death. Let's spend the rest of our lives letting the light of Jesus shine before others so that at the end of time, when it's all said and done, as many people as possible glorify our Father in heaven. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I am thankful that you are the light of the world. 
And I'm a little bit intimidated, quite honestly, with the charge that I, that we are to be the light of the world. That, Lord, I, I sometimes feel like I've got no light to shine myself, but I know that wasn't your intention. That your intention is not that we generate somehow light, that we create light. You've already created the light. You are the light of the world. All we have to do is reflect it to the people around us. Lord, we're, we're less like a torch and more like a mirror. So Lord, I just pray right now for each and every person in this room right now, the, those of us who are followers of Jesus, Lord, would you help remind us to be that mirror this week? Can we take what we have received from you, the light of life that the darkness cannot overcome? We can take that, receive it from you, and then we can reflect that out to the people around us. Lord, would you show us how to be light in our communities, in our, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, on the baseball diamond, on the track, in those places where you have us specifically to reach out to others, Lord, not out of our own strength, but because of what you've given to us, can we be the light of the world because we have received your light of life. God, when that happens and somebody comes to know you because of our investment and our shining your light, we're gonna give you all the praise and all the glory for that. We thank you, Jesus, that you are who you are and you brought the light of life to earth and into my life. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we're gonna end our service today with a kind of an extended time of worship together. So if you're able to stand, would you stand one more time and sing with us? Thanks.
great. Thank you, team. And thanks, Steve, for that very powerful message today. And, uh, you know, I was thinking about it. To imagine Jesus coming into that Feast of Tabernacles. And what did Steve talk about? It was the illumination of the temple. And Jesus barges in and basically says, hey, God's up to something new. I am the light of the world. I, I am who you need. And then Jesus is going to turn around and tell his followers. He's going to say, now you are the light of the world. And so let's go take the light to the rest of the world. I think about for us, you know, I love when we come in here on Sundays. In a way, God kind of uses moments like these to kind of stoke the fire, if you would. But I think he wants to remind us today, hey, you go be the light of the world now. All right, take what God's doing in your life, even what's happened here today, and let's put it to practice. All right, when you go to school tomorrow, uh, when you interact with people at work, your family, your neighbors, even when you're out having lunch today. How can you shine the light of Jesus for others? That's what we've been called to, all right? That's what we want to be about as a church, all right? Let's go be the light of Jesus. Hey, in two weeks, uh, Mother's Day weekend, actually, we're going to have a special time in our service that we call Family Commissioning. Uh, this is an opportunity for moms and dads to come to the stage with their children as a way of saying, hey, I believe my child is a gift from God, and I want to raise my child to know and to love Jesus Christ. Uh, parent has a very important responsibility in that, but we as a church family have a responsibility in that too. So it's a special time where we together as a church family say, hey, we're all in this together and pray for these families. If you're a parent uh, and you've never done anything like that before with, with your child uh, and you'd like to know more about that next Sunday at 1030, we're going to host just a class on family commissioning. You're invited to be there and uh, you can learn more about this special part in our service. Go to our website if you need some more information. If you'd like to sign up, it's at the what, What's Happening tab, and uh, we can help you in preparing for that event. All right? Man, we love you being here today. I'm going to pray for us before we go. Thanks for your tolerance with the little light show. All right? That's not planned. All right? That's not a part of the big light festivities. That's something that only seems to happen on Sundays, right? We keep trying to figure that out together. We're working hard to resolve that, so thanks for your patience. Well, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank you for this great time of worship uh, together today. Thanks for our church family. Uh, so good to be together, and most importantly, thanks for Jesus. Uh, he is our light, and uh, Father, as he has his way in us. Jesus, as you have your way in us, I just pray that we'd go and be light for others to see that they may see Jesus in us and all that we do. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time.